You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 110. You may follow along with me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends from Zion your, sep- your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will not, he will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Excuse me. We do have Redemption Hill kids this morning, so if that serves you, parents. We have Redemptional Kids for ages 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9. Thank you for those who are serving in Redemptional Kids. Uh, you can check them in right across the hallway. You can see Jen. They'll have a Redemption Hill shirt on. Well, this morning, Dean Klein will come up here in a moment and preach from Psalm 110. And I want to give you some backstory as to why he's preaching this morning. It's twofold. Uh, one, this last week, I was in just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at a, doing some uh, at a denominational meeting, had some responsibilities there, and so I asked him to preach um, this morning so that I can just simply focus on those denominational responsibilities. And uh, about a week or two ago, as we were talking about what he would preach from, I said, hey, hey, Dean, would you mind preaching from Psalm 110? And, and the reason why I had asked him to preach from Psalm 110 is because as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, you know, slowly, uh, I absolutely, and this was with some attention, didn't even touch uh, Hebrews 1, verse 13, which quotes Psalm 110. There was just so much in that particular text. I was thinking to myself, this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament that deserves its own sermon. So I'll, I'll get to that. So I just kind of tabled it. And then I'm like, hey, Dean, could you just do 110? And he's like, you know what? I was thinking about doing one ten, Psalm 110. <laughs> so you just kind of like see the providence of God, and it's like, there you have it. Psalm 110 it is. So that's kind of the, the backstory of what Dean will be, pre- be preaching on this morning. And so I'm going to invite him up. Dean has been a, a faithful member of this church, and so he's preached before, and we're always eager to hear from him. Thank you, Sean, and good morning. Um, That story is, in fact, true, and I really, in all candor, maybe a week and a half to two weeks before the message, I had no idea, and then Psalm 110 kept coming up, and God kept bringing that to me and to my attention, and and that's uh, the providence of God working in both of our lives and bringing us here this morning as we consider this incredible passage Beyond that, I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms. The book of Psalms, the, the Psalter is, 
is on my short list of favorite books in all of the Bible. And it has gotten me through some tough times. I not only admire the great the poetic theological expressions of worship to the living God, it has helped me to know God better. It has helped me to know myself better. Uh, the great French reformer John Calvin put it this way. What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury? It were difficult to find words to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented as in a mirror. And so you see in the Psalms from the writers... All aspects of emotion and even brutal honesty at times. If you're struggling with sin, you see deep moments of confession and then you come to a text like Psalm 32 with this hope. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Or if you're battled depression, you come to Psalm 42 and you see the psalmist in despair, and he asks himself, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed in me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. It is indeed medicine for a sick soul. It is the literary sanctuary as you open your Bible up to the middle section of the Bible. And it has taken me through some of the lowest and darkest of times. In fact, I will tell you this this morning, that one year ago today, we said our goodbyes to our son, Joey Anthony Klein. We gathered for a funeral at West Kirk, and it was the Psalms that carried me in the aftermath. It was coming to the Psalms in the depths of my brokenness and crying out to God and and God was there. I, I think of Psalm 34, 8, 18 actually, where it says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And, and some of my most vivid memories, even six months after we lost Joey, is as I sat by my mom in hospice and prayed psalms and read psalms to her. Those are some of the most important memories. And here we have a psalm that is not like any other psalm. There's many genres of psalms. There's psalms of lament, psalms of praise, psalms of thanks. Psalm 110 is more of a royal or messianic and even prophetic psalm, as we'll find out. Martin Luther has written regarding the psalms, the Psalms looked into the hearts of all the saints, and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself, indeed where blooms in sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all his benefits. I wonder if, if Martin Luther had just read Psalm 110. Because Psalm 110 
gives you a glimpse into heaven. Psalm 110 gives you a glimpse into the very throne of God himself. I believe that it stands at the mountaintop of the Psalter in all of its majesty. No wonder that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. And in the midst of our journey through Hebrews, I believe that God in his providence has brought us here this morning because there are ten quotations and allusions to this psalm in the book of Hebrews. Many of its themes found throughout the book of Hebrews. We must ask the question, though, and it's an important one. Who wrote Psalm 110? Because your understanding of, so, of the very first verse hangs on that truth. Does it matter? In many cases, it does not matter. In many cases, we don't know who wrote many of these psalms. But when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, who are we talking about here? Why does it matter? If it's a courtier that's speaking and writing this psalm, is he addressing David? Is he addressing, is he, is he saying that Yahweh says to my king, David? That's what many scholars might tell you. Many scholars would argue that. And yet, in the superscription above the psalm, it says a psalm of David. It is identified as a psalm of David. And that's in all of the transcripts that have come down through the ages. But if that's not enough, we need to hear from Jesus himself. So turn, if you will, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Because it's extremely crucial that we understand that David, David in fact wrote this psalm. In Mark chapter 12... Am I in the right passage? Yeah, 12, verse 35. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he is interacting with the scribes and the religious leaders. And as he was teaching in the temple, verse 35, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And so the integrity of Jesus' own words hangs in the balance as we strive to understand who wrote this psalm. And Jesus is using this psalm to the religious leaders to appeal that, to them that it's not enough that he's the son of David from the line of David. That's too small of a Jesus. But there's something greater here than the son of David. And it is the Lord of David. It is the anticipated Messiah. And so when we come to Psalm 110, it's, it's easily broken up. We, we have two oracles in verses 1 through 3, we have an oracle that speaks of the kingship of the Messiah. 
And in verses 4 through 7, the second article, we, it speaks of his priesthood. And we'll, we'll break that down here. And with each oracle, there's commentary that follows. Commentary that follows his kingship. Commentary that follows his priesthood. Now, I'm only going to be able to give a brief overview this morning, but if you want to take a deeper dive, one of the great works was written by a 17th century English Puritan named Edward Reynolds, and this is what he wrote. This psalm, and it's 400 pages long, so if you've got time, by the way, it's 400 pages long. This psalm is one of the fullest and most compendious prophecies of the person and offices of Christ in the whole Old Testament. There are few, if any, of the articles of that creed which we generally confess and confess this morning, which are not expressed by most evident implication couched into this little model. And so we begin here with the first oracle. Oh, before I begin, when did this psalm, when did David write this? We have to think in terms of about 1,000 B.C. That's extremely important, and we'll get to that. It's written about 1,000 years before Christ. And so David is, in, in a sense, as he, as he writes these oracles, he's speaking to us as a prophet. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Or in the Hebrew, Yahweh, all capital, high case, capital letters, Lord there, L-O-R-D. Yahweh says to my capital L, small case letters. When you see that, then we have the word, the Hebrew, Adonai. The Lord says to my, Yahweh says to my Adonai, literally Yahweh's utterance to my Lord. Here we have, and he says, sit at my right hand. Here we have the doctrine, which I would argue is one of the most neglected doctrines in all of the creed, and that is the ascension of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Christ. And when we speak of the ascension of Christ, it's something that we often confess in the Apostles' Creed, for instance, he descended in hell, he was raised on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The ascension of Christ, which is an extremely important doctrine. And as you read through your New Testament, time and time again, you find this phrase, seated at the right hand of God, sitting at the right hand of God. One of my favorites is in Matthew 26. When Jesus is arrested and he's confronted by the high priest and the high priest asks him a question, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
That is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. A vision of the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days at the right hand of God. They knew what he was talking about. They tore their clothes and, and accused Christ of blasphemy. There's something greater than David here. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, it's on your screen there. Paul writes this. That's if Logan's doing his job. It's on the screen. Um, it says here that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's the ascension. After the resurrection, Christ ascended. He descended in death at the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven after the resurrection, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What are the implications of this doctrine? Christ at the right hand of God the Father, the second person of the Trinity, sitting there. Well, number one, he's greater than David. We've already made that point. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. P Peter's preaching, and he says, David never ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's greater than angels. Sean preached that. What angel was elevated to the right hand of God? Hebrews 1.13. The second person of the Godhead who descended has been raised to the right hand of God, those whom they murdered, Acts chapter 5, verse 30. So that commentator Derek Kidner writes, God has emphatically exalted him as he, man has emphatically rejected him. Even more importantly, listen to this. Be, with Christ at the right hand of God, it serves as a ground for his intercession for us. He prays for us. Romans 8.34. Listen to this. It signals the completion of the sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 10. The Levites, the Levitical priests stand daily offering sacrifice for sin. Christ offered sacrificed once and for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And finally, what are the implications? He awaits the conquest and ultimate surrender of his enemies, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. So we read there in verses, or verse 1 at, there, at the close there, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. The word enemy there is the same Hebrew found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the same word where it says, I will put enmity. It's from the same word. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush you on the head and you will bruise him on the hill foretelling the redemptive plan that would ultimately culminate in Christ crushing the serpent's head at the cross and through his resurrection. And that enmity, as you see it begin in Genesis chapter 3, will, will reach its climax in the book of Revelation when Christ ultimately conquers all enemies and vanquishes all evil. We see that really played out in Revelation chapter 12 where Satan knows he has a short time. 
and he, he assaults not only Christ but his people. But we know this from Paul's own writings. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. He will do it. Now look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That is the active, controlling confrontation of God's enemies. When Christ came the first time, there was this expectation that that there would be a decisive and final elimination of all the enemies of God. But that did not happen. Christ inaugurated his kingdom and then ultimately promised that he will come again to consummate his kingdom. And at that point, that's when that will happen. I'm reminded of the story as Jesus is telling it in the parable of the tares and the wheat in Matthew chapter 13. It is a description of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom. And, And Jesus describes how Satan is sowing these tares, these weeds among the wheat, and, and the, his servants ask, shall we remove these? And Jesus says, let them grow together. It's a collision of two kingdoms. And they grow together. And ultimately, Jesus says, when he comes again, he will resolve the issue and separate the tares and the wheat. That's what it means in the sense where he rules in the midst of his enemies. Listen, look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. How do you interpret that? I like what D.A. Carson said. He says that it envisions a splendid army of the young arising freshly, silently, and in holy splendor, doing their master's bidding. They're doing it willingly. Isn't that, isn't that the description of regeneration? When Christ gives us a new heart? Isn't that what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And of course, if you understand the mercies of God, you become a willing, living sacrifice vessel for Christ's use. You become a part, because God's using his people in this battle. Romans 17, 14 says, it's one of my favorite verses in Revelation, it says, they will make war on the lamb, that's the enemies of God, and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called, are called and chosen and faithful. Now, the second oracle. That is the first oracle. And we come now to the second oracle. The first oracle describes the kingship of Christ and how he will ultimately conquer and consummate his kingdom. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. I I don't know about you, but those are strong words. God keeps his oaths, and some have argued that the oath is actually stronger than the oracle itself. He has sworn. He will not change his mind. 
Yahweh is addressing here again the Messiah, the anticipated Messiah, Jesus. And he says to the king, verse, look at verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that is strange. It comes out of nowhere. It is, in, in fact, I would argue, shocking language. It's out of place, but not in God's eyes. But in our eyes, you look at it and you say, what's that doing there? Because 500 years before David wrote this text, God gave his law. And God's law through Moses banned the idea, forbid the idea that a king could be a priest or a priest could be a king. You'd be subject to death. You know, David just preceded, preceded uh, Saul. Do you remember what happened to King Saul? He tried to mingle the kingship and priesthood, and God destroyed him. And David is mindful of that. And so you've got to be wondering, what's David thinking as he writes this? And also, you have to ask the question, who is this Melchizedek character? I can't even pronounce his name. <laughs> Who is he? He comes out of nowhere. It's strange. And not only that, what follows is even stranger because you would expect a commentary on the priesthood. But that's not what David does. It's a, com it's a continued commentary on the kingship. Listen. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpse. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Comes all the more stranger. So you see the kingship language of conquest, war, and authority. We see the enthronement of a priest-king. And this is only the prelude. This is not the final setting. But is the prelude to, the, to world conquest and the consummation of all things. And I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 19. It'll be on your screen there. Revelation chapter 19. Because this language is very comparable to what we read at the second advent of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But until then, 
we live in a fallen world. And yet it, it is important to know, as David tells us here in Psalm 110, and as John tells us in the book of Revelation, in the midst of all of this evil in this world, and in the midst of all of the injustices and war and travesty, the Lamb ultimately wins. He wins. And until that day, William Hendrickson reminds us, because I do believe that just like the church in the book of Revelation experienced intense persecution, I really do believe that there is a time of increasing hostility and intense persecution against the church here in the West and here in America unlike anything we've ever seen. And William Hendrickson reminds us from his own book that the assurance that God sees, we have assurance that God sees our tears, that our prayers are influential in world affairs, that our death is precious in his sight, and that our final victory is assured. The blood of the martyrs will be avenged, and Christ lives and reigns forever. He governs the world in the interest of his church. He is coming again to take his people to himself in the marriage supper of the Lamb and to live with them forever in a rejuvenated universe. But let's get back to Melchizedek. I don't want to leave that hanging there. Who is he? And why is he so important? Melchizedek is found only... Three places in all of Scripture. Two times in the Old Testament. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 14. He's found here in Psalm 110, as we just read. And he is predominantly noticed in the book of Hebrews. And Sean will expand on that in the, in the weeks ahead. But we still have to ask the question, why did David introduce him? And what is going on in David's own mind? We'll keep that, that screenshot up there with Genesis 14. Because David understands that there cannot be a king priest according to the law of Moses. And yet he writes this. And my, my thought process here is that when you became a king... The king was required to write out the law of God and to read it daily to keep them from veering to the left or the right. We understand that most kings did not do that, and there were many wicked kings, but I, I'm certain that David did. And I'm also certain that David read Genesis chapter 14, so let's go there. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Before we get to verses 18 and through 20. I just want to give you a very brief understanding of the context because this passage is just as strange as Psalm 110, verse 4. This Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. But in the context here, we have Abraham and all of these small town kings, call them mares. Many of them were pirates, they just wanted to collect spoil. And you had all these battles, and word came to Abraham that his brother Lot had been taken captive. And so Abraham gathered up an army of over 300, ultimately won a battle, and he, there, you'll have all these allies. And then he's in, a, he's in dialogue with this king from Sodom, and, this, and of course, 
he wants to give Abraham his share. And Abraham, you know, verse uh, 22, Abraham says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's not on the screen. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest, I should, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. He, did, he refused everything that the king of Sodom gave him. But there's this just normal, coherent dialogue between Abram, Abram and the king of Sodom. But out of nowhere, it gets broken up in verses 18 through 20. Let me read. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, some people believe that's modern-day Jerusalem, and this is about, by the way, this is 2000 B.C., so we're talking centuries before the law is given. That's important. The law given about 1500 B.C., then David writes his psalm in about 1000 B.C. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Notice that. He's a king priest. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What's the point? There seems to be nothing intrinsically wrong with being a king priest. And Abraham himself gave him a tenth of everything, paid him homage. Abraham considered him a superior. In fact, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He even received a blessing from him. The word Salem means king of peace. Hebrews lays that out in Hebrews chapter 7, the, the exegesis of this passage. King of righteousness, king of Salem, Yet without genealogy, everybody important in Genesis has a genealogy. Not this man. He just kind of pops up and then disappears. So what is happening? There are two views on Melchizedek. We're not going to even begin to get into the, the pros and cons, but some people argue that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. The other view would be that it's more of a pattern. Uh, there are patterns in the Old Testament. There are institutions, peoples, types, and certainly Melchizedek points to Jesus Christ. And it makes the point that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being a king priest. If it is Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, you would think that David would just say in Psalm 110, verse 4, you are Melchizedek. But he says you are a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. Nonetheless, I believe that David certainly had in mind when he wrote this, the story of Abram's encounter with Melchizedek. You see, David understood, as I remind you, that the Levitical order established that you get bumped off if you combine the priesthood and the kingship. And yet, he says there will be a king priest. And then it hangs there for a thousand years. And Christ comes. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews, I like what the commentator and theologian Derek Kidner said. He parallels, and we're not, this isn't just an interesting note, side note. He parallels the book of Hebrews with Psalm 110 in this way. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, the first oracle, establishes the kingship of Christ. Psalm 110, verses 4 through 7, establishes the priesthood of the anticipated Messiah. Hebrews kind of works the same way. You see in the early chapters, the emphasis is upon the kingship of Christ. And as we move into the later chapters, the emphasis is upon the priesthood of Christ. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10, we're not going to read that for sake of time, but the summation is it's an ex, it just a recaps, it recaptures what happened in Genesis with Abram. It tells the story in detail, and it makes the point that this Melchizedek character is of extreme importance. In fact, in verse 3, it says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, according to the text, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So there's theological weight and depth to Melchizedek establishing his importance. So look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In essence, if the ultimate priesthood was the Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses was final, why is David speaking of a priest? in the order of Melchizedek, centuries after the law of God was given, 1,000 years before Christ. David is saying that the Levitical priesthood is not going to cut it. It is not good enough, and it needs to be eclipsed by another priesthood. And that's what the writer here is arguing as well. Look at verse 12 too. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The law and the priesthood go together, and if you take one from the other, you take them both. If you take the priesthood away, you take the law away. It becomes obsolete, the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law. Look at the movement. Notice the movement where we've come. We've moved from Abraham in 2000 B.C., with this vague figure, Melchizedek, to the giving of the law of Moses in 1500 B.C., saying you cannot have a priest king, to David writing in 1000 B.C., Psalm 110, that we will have a priest king, to Hebrews, which says we do have a priest king who has established a new covenant. Look at verses 13 through 25. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not Aaron, not the Levite tribe. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest rises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. There you have it right there from Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one that said to him, God's oath, the Lord has sworn, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And and this is the, the payoff right here. Consequently, Jesus, the priest king, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Michael Horton sums up this passage this way. He says that the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, while Jesus' priesthood is guaranteed by God's oath. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, The change in priesthood therefore requires a change in covenant from a conditional law covenant based on the types and shadows of the Levitical priesthood to the eternal mediation of Jesus Christ in the covenant of redemption realized in the covenant of grace. Christ's priesthood has accomplished what the Levitical office could never do and so has annulled it altogether. He is the mediator of a better covenant. His priesthood is eternal because unlike the Levitical priest, he never dies and is sinless so that he doesn't offer a sacrifice for himself but only for his people. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who is worthy of our submission. He confronts and conquers all enemies, and he will ultimately and decisively bring in the consummation. But he's also the priest. If he's just the king, we live in terror. But he's the priest. He's the priest king. He's the sacrifice. His body is the veil. He's the temple. He's the lamb. He is the perfect advocate with the Father because he is the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because Jesus is both God and man and priest king, 1 Timothy 2, 5. This is the Jesus of the gospel. He is a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. And everyone said, Amen. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. 